Our title this morning is Inspiring Worship. Inspiring Worship. Inspiring Music in particular. We're going to talk about that kind of music and what it means. And I've chosen the term inspiring for a very particular, you could say, technical reason. If you break that word down, it comes from Latin roots, a Latin prefix meaning into, and a Latin root meaning, uh, uh, the Latin root is spirare, which means breathe, or you could even say spirit. So we're talking this morning about music into which the spirit breathes. Spirit-filled music, somebody might say. We hear people today say, boy, the worship was filled with the Spirit today. Or when I heard that song or when we sang that song this morning in worship, uh, I was filled with the Spirit. It was filled with the Spirit. You hear that kind of language thrown around a lot these days with regard to worship music. Now, music is mentioned in the New Testament in 10 passages. And when you go through those passages and you look and you read them very carefully, you don't see them connected to spirit-filled worship, not directly. And so some might point to 1 Corinthians 14, 15, which says, I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. But Paul is very clear there that he's not talking about the Holy Spirit, but he's talking about his own spirit. Uh, More generally, some might go to John chapter 4, verse 24, uh, where Jesus says that we should worship in spirit and in truth. But again, he's talking about worshiping with our spirit, and he's not talking about the spirit to whom we give worship. And so those passages are not very helpful in that regard either. Now, that's not to say that the spirit has nothing to do with our worship. The Holy Spirit is God, and so being God, we worship the Spirit as we do the Father and the Son, the Godhead, the three in one. But the point is that whenever somebody said, I felt the Spirit today because the worship was particularly good, there's no passage of Scripture in the Old or New Testament that expressed that same kind of sentiment. Still, I think that we can talk about spirit-filled music, inspiring music in the worship of the church because of the context of our text this morning, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Now look at it, beginning in verse 18, Paul says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he says, addressing one another or speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. We often just use Ephesians 5.19 to talk about music in the church or singing in the church, but it's a part of the sentence that begins in verse 18. And the command here is not singing. Singing is a participle. That qualifies the command. The command is, be filled with the Spirit. And then Paul goes about telling us three ways to go about being filled with the Spirit. The first being singing. 
And then he talks about giving thanks and he talks about submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And we're going to talk about that first way that one may be filled with the Spirit. Singing, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And the Apostle Paul reveals here that inspiring music in the church does three things. Number one, it communicates. Number two, it elevates. And number three, it invigorates. Okay, so let's start, number one, with inspiring music, noticing that from the New Testament, we learn that it communicates. For Paul says, we address one another. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. A better translation which is found in all the other major translations besides the ESV, is speaking to one another. That's literally what the apostle is saying. When we sing to one another, we communicate. We speak to one another. Now, there's a parallel passage that is very helpful in this regard, Colossians 3.16. And in Colossians 3.16, Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we see from these passages that when we sing in worship, we're to communicate, we're to address one another, we're to speak to one another, we're to teach one another, we are to admonish one another. But what do we see in the large churches our young people are flocking to these days? Do we see an emphasis in the music on communication? That's not what we're seeing. What we're seeing and what's drawing the crowds is music that is loud, that is emotionally driven, that has a good beat, that is well professionally performed. Uh, we see fog, we see lights, we see a show. And folks go to worship services like that and they say, wow, I really felt the Spirit move me when I was at worship today. But is that communication or is it something else? Are those external shows given to fulfill any obligation in Scripture or are they done more to fulfill some desire that we have that's not necessarily God's desire? If there's any relationship to God in these styles of worship, it's more of a pagan relationship than a Christian relationship. In pagan worship, which predates Christian worship, in pagan religion, the goal was to worship in such a way that would manipulate God. If I am emotional enough, if I put on a big enough show, if I'm loud enough, if I cry to God enough, if I make enough noise, then he'll hear me and he'll do what I want him to do. That's the idea behind pagan religion. And that's what a lot of the modern styles of worship look like today. They're more pagan in nature than Christian. Very similar to what you see on Mount Carmel in the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings chapter 18. Uh, Elijah was very calm. He wasn't emotionally driven in his presentation. But what did the prophets of Baal do? 
From morning to midday they cried out, O Baal, hear us. They cried out and lifted up their voices. They cut themselves till they bled. They put on a show and they tried to be emotional enough and loud enough and outrageous enough for their God to finally cave in and do what they wanted him to do. And 1 Kings 18 says, no one said anything, no one heard anything, nothing happened. But that's the nature of pagan religion, to try to manipulate God, to get him to do what you want him to do. Now, Ephesians 5.19 encourages communication, encourages speaking, addressing one another. And it's not just that one verse. But if you look throughout the entire letter of Ephesians, you'll see that the priority is building a relationship with God through learning His Word, by studying His commandments. You draw closer to Him through teaching and study. Now, I don't have time to read all these passages, but when I started looking in the overall context of Ephesians, I was really amazed at how much Paul emphasized study of the Word of God and how that draws you closer. And so, I don't, like I said, I don't have time to read all these. If you're taking notes, I want to encourage you to write these references down, all from Ephesians, and go back and look at them later. I'm going to hit the high points here. Starting in chapter 1, verse 9. Paul's listing spiritual blessings that are in Christ Jesus, and among the spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus, he mentions knowing God's will. In that same chapter, chapter 1, verse 13, he says Christians are sealed with the Holy Spirit when they listen to the message of truth. So you're concerned about getting the Spirit? Are you getting the truth? Because they're inseparably linked together. Chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. Paul says a prayer for the Ephesians, that they may receive a spirit of wisdom and revelation. And then look at chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Paul says there, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. You want to receive the revelation by the Spirit that came through the apostles and prophets? You want the insight into the mystery of Christ that Paul had? Paul says what you need to do is read what I have written. Again, communication of the Word. Paul says in that same chapter, chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, that his apostolic office, which he calls stewardship in verse 2, he said it was given to him so that he could preach. And then if you look at chapter 3, verse 10, he says the manifold wisdom of God is to be made known through the church. Same chapter, look at verses 16 through 19. There, Paul prays that the Ephesians would be strengthened by the Spirit in the part of the inner man, in their interior, that comprehends and that knows. Again, the emphasis is not on the emotions, but on the thinking part of man. 
If you keep reading into chapter 4, we get to verses 13 and 14, and leaders are said that they've been given to the church to equip the saints until they reach, he says, the unity of the faith. Note the definite article before the word faith. The faith. Whenever you see that phraseology, it's usually referring to the body of truth, what we believe in, rather than our beliefs. He goes on to say, until the unity of faith and until we achieve the knowledge of the Son of God, the result being that we will no longer be susceptible to the winds, he calls them, of false doctrine. Same chapter, verse 15. We're to grow by speaking the truth in love. Still communication. And then chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. He says there we're not to walk as Gentiles do. And, and then he gives five contrasts to the way the Christian relationship ought to be to God. Number one, they were in the futility of their minds. Number two, darkened in their understanding. Number three, ignorant. Number four, hard-hearted. Number five, given to sensuality. Asalia in the Greek. It has to do with lasciviousness, licentiousness, excess, outrageousness. And yes, most of the time it's used in the context of sexual immorality, but it also has to do with emotions that are out of control. And so you're not supposed to be given to emotional outrageousness and outbursts and excess, but rather you should be a thinking person who's drawn closer to God through His Word. If we continue on, look at chapter 4, verses 20 and following. Ephesians 4, 20 and following. Listen to what Paul says. That is not the way you learned Christ. We learn Christ through teaching. Verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And then he says you're taught three things. Number one, to put, on, to put off the old self, repentance. Number two, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Not your feelings, but your mind. And number three, to put on the new self. And so again, learning, communicating the word of God. You get into chapter five, and we're warned not to be deceived by empty words. Chapter five, verse 17. Understand what the will of the Lord is. And then when you get into chapter six, Paul gives a picture of the Christian armor and parts of that armor also point to this idea we're talking about of communication to the Word of God. Uh, there's the belt of truth and the sword of the Spirit. Again, we're concerned about being filled with the Spirit. What does he define the sword of the Spirit as in verse 17? The Word of God. That's the Spirit's instrument of influence. That's how he guides us and directs us, through the Word. And then finally, Paul ends this letter in chapter 6, verse 19, asking prayers that he might be able to capably communicate the Word of God. So Paul in the book of Ephesians is laying out an argument that we draw closer to God, we build and strengthen our relationship with God through learning about Him through the truth, through the gospel, 
through His Word, the Bible, and not being driven by our emotions. And so we need to think about it when we say, boy, I really felt the Spirit this morning when they sang that song. Because what singing and music and worship is supposed to do is communicate who God is and what He's done for us. And through that communication, we draw closer in our relationship to Him. Maybe this is why you don't see instrumental music in the New Testament. It's not because it hadn't been invented yet. A lot of people think, well, you don't see instrumental music in the New Testament because the New Testament is old. And we've advanced since then. Instrumental music predated Christ by thousands of years. For thousands of years, the pagans and the Jews had been using instrumental music in worship. And then suddenly we get into the Christian age and we don't see a trace of it. Ten verses talk about music in Christian worship. And not one of them say anything beyond singing. It's clear that the early Christians worshipped by singing a cappella. Why? Well, we're not told exactly, but I wonder if some, some of that has to do with the importance of communication in our songs. And the way emotions sometimes can lead us astray and the need for us to be singing to one another, teaching one another, admonishing one another, speaking to one another. So first of all, you want inspiring music and worship? Paul says it communicates. Number two, miss some slides there. Sorry about that. That happens when you're preaching. Sometimes you just get kind of carried away and forget about your slides. Number two, it elevates. Inspiring music elevates. Elevates whom? What does he say? Our songs ought to be sung to the Lord. So our worship is meant to have God as the object, and we're serving Him in our worship. We're worshiping Him, which means we're concerned about what He wants, what He's asked us for. Do you give gifts to people they don't ask for? You might. And you might get lucky and get the right thing, but oftentimes we make a mistake and we don't get the right gift. If somebody's asking for something and we want to please them, then we give them what they ask for. Has God asked for drums and concerts and loud music and instruments and light shows and sensational worship? Or has he asked for singing? Where do we get that style of worship that's so popular these days? Did we get it from God's word? Or are we doing it because it's what pleases us? Whom are we trying to elevate in that kind of worship? Where does it come from? What's the point? And so if you look at the elevation of the Christian worship, what you find is... Acapella music is more conducive to that than instrumental music because it gives God what he has asked for. And all that is asked for in those 10 passages of scripture that we're talking about is acapella singing that speaks to one another. We want to elevate God. We'll give him what he asked for. Also, 
instrumental music can only be performed by a few people. I can't offer God someone else's instrumental music. I can sit there and watch it and enjoy it for myself, but I can't offer him that which someone else is doing. And so the problem with elevation is that God has not asked for it, and it's not something that I can do personally. Whereas in the New Testament we see singing is something that we can all do together, addressing one another, and it's what God has asked for. Thirdly, I want you to notice from Ephesians 5.19 that inspiring music, spirit-filled music, invigorates. It does involve the emotions. For he says here that melody is to be made, but not on musical instruments. He says making melody in your heart to the Lord. That's where the melody is to be made. And our hearts, part of our hearts, are filled with emotion. The heart is tied to emotion. But the heart in the Bible includes not just the emotions, but other things as well. And Proverbs is a good place to illustrate this. First of all, the heart involves the mind, or the thinking part of man. It involves the mind. Look at Proverbs Chapter 3, verse 3, where a father tells his son, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. What do you write on your heart? What do you write? Words. So if you're writing something on the tablet of your heart, it means you're thinking about it. The heart is the thinking part of man. Number two, the heart also has to do with the emotions or the feeling part. Of human beings. And so uh, Proverbs 15 verse 15 says, the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. That's where joy is. That's where sorrow is. That's where shame is. That's where relief is and comfort in the heart. But not just that. Number three, the heart also involves the volitional part of man, the decision-making part of an individual. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 20. Those of crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord, but those of blameless ways are His delight. So you see, the heart is not just feelings, but it involves feelings. It has the thinking and the feeling and the decision-making parts of humanity all combined. So emotions are important. But we need to beware because emotions can be misleading. A lot of times people determine God's will for their lives with their emotions. I feel that God has laid this on my heart to do. I just feel that he wants me to do this. You've heard that before. What really gets me is when a preacher stands up and he says, you know, I've all week long on this sermon, but this morning God told me to tell you something else. And everybody gets really excited. They're like, oh, this is going to be good. No, it's not going to be good. What he studied all week long would be good. That was from the Word of God. Whatever popped into his head when he woke up that morning, who knows where that came from? That was an emotional thing. That's an emotional thing. And emotions can be misleading. Here's a, here's a few things to consider. Number one, emotions are fleeting. 
That means they're temporary. They don't last very long. Uh, you may feel one way in the morning when you wake up and a completely different way in the evening when you're tired and exhausted. Sometimes the decisions we make depend on the time of the day that we make them. Uh, if we were making it in the morning when we felt good, we might go in one direction, but since we made it in the evening when we were tired and grumpy, we went in an entirely different direction with it. Emotions are fleeting. They come and they go. Number two, emotions are often wrong. Now you have enough personal experience in your life to know this is true. You've often been misled by your own emotions. Have you ever felt happy about something when you shouldn't have felt good about it at all? Have you ever felt guilty about something when you didn't do anything wrong? Have you ever felt secure in a relationship and learned later that that person had betrayed you? Have you ever felt really sad and it turns out you didn't have to feel sad? Have you ever worried about something that never came to pass? We've all been misled by our emotions. We've all had experiences like that. And we know it's true. Emotions can be misleading. So why? Why do we base the most important aspect of our life, our spiritual relationship with God, on something as fleeting and misleading as emotions? Consider this third problem. Emotions can come from all kinds of sources, good ones and bad ones. A good person can influence you to feel good about yourself, and a bad person can influence you to feel good about yourself. And I'm not ready to concede that emotions come from supernatural sources, but let's, let's just say that they are for the purpose of argument. Let's say that supernatural beings can plant a feeling in your heart. That God could and sometimes does lay something on your heart. Let's say you have that feeling. How do you know it's God and not a demon or Satan himself who's planted that thought or that emotion into your mind? You don't know where those things come from unless they come from the sure, steadfast word of God. Beware of your emotions. Emotions are important. When we sing, we're to make melody in our hearts to the Lord. But it's not just about the emotions. Okay, well, what do I do? Paul says, 1 Corinthians 14, 15, We are to sing praise with the Spirit, but we are to sing with our mind also. So observe these two considerations that will help you keep your emotions in check during worship. Here's number one. Number one, make sure it is not just your emotions, but also your mind that is engaged during worship. Not just the emotions, but also the mind. Both are important. The heart is not just the feeling part of an individual. It also involves the thinking and the decision-making part. Are you thinking about the words that you are singing? Are you living the words that you are singing? Do the words you're singing elevate God in worship? And does the preaching at the church you attend and worship with, does it correspond with the word of God? Think about those things. That's number one. And number two, 
make sure your emotions are coming from the right place. Christian worship is not supposed to be driven by the emotions that are stirred by melodies and drum beats. But Christian worship comes from emotions that are stirred by the Word of God. Now, I want to illustrate this by looking at Psalm 119. Uh, turn in your Bible to Psalm 119. I'm going to look at several verses here. I went through that. Every verse just about in Psalm 119 is about the Word of God. And I want you to just see how many times the psalmist says that his emotions were stirred by the commandments, the rules, the promises, the testimonies, by the Word of God. It's astounding. I've got 25 examples here that I'm going to go through quickly. And if you have your Bibles open to 119, you can follow along with me. And just look, where does this inspired writer get his emotions? Do they come out of the ether? Do they come from music, from melodies, from noise, from lights, from shows? Or do they come from the Word of God? Psalm 119, verse 7. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. Praise is worship. I will worship when I learn your rules. Verse 14. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Verse 16. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Verse 24. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Verse 28. My soul melts away for sorrow. There's another emotion. Strengthen me according to your word. Verse 35. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Verse 47, I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. Verse 52, when I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Verse 53, Hot indignation, another strong emotion. Hot indignation, anger seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. He's angry. He's filled with hot indignation because the law has taught him something and people are not respecting the law. Verse 54, your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. What is he singing? He's singing the word of God. Verse 62, at midnight I rise to praise you, worship, because of your righteous rules. And then verse 70, their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. Verse 74, those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. Verse 111, your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of of my heart. Verse 120, my flesh trembles for fear. Where's that emotion coming from? And I'm afraid of your judgments. Verse 131, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Verse 136, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. 
Verse 139, my zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Verse 143, trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Verse 161, princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. Worship is about standing in awe of God. We worship the one who is awesome, whom we revere. And what makes us see him as he is, what magnifies God and, and brings him close up so that we can know him? His word. Verse 165, great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Verse 171, my lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. And finally, verse 172, my tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Yes, we should have emotions in our worship. Yes, we should feel something when we worship. The question is, what invigorates us? What should drive those emotions? Where should the feelings come from? And it's not from drum beats and melodies and instruments and loud noise. It's from thoughts that come through the Word of God. The Word of God will tell you who He is and what He's done for you and friends, that's what should move us. And the songs we sing should communicate these things. And when we sing them and we understand what we're singing, what we're speaking to one another, that's what should fill our eyes with tears. That's what should make our hearts swell with love. That's what should cause us to raise our voices in joy. Yes, we should be emotional. But why? Because we like the melody, we like the beat, or because God has done wonderful things and He is worthy of our praise. What does the Bible say? What does Psalm 119 say? Your feelings should be driven by the Word of God. Now, should you want Spirit-filled worship? Absolutely. Be filled with the Spirit, the Bible says. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Singing the music of the church is how, one of the ways we can be filled with the Spirit. But Paul says this singing is three things. Number one, it communicates. Number two, it elevates God. And number three, it invigorates because of the Word of God that is being dwelled upon and spoken and taught. Singing and the music of the church is very important, but it must be honoring God and it must elevate Him to the position He deserves. It must represent Him properly. We're about to sing a song. And it may stir emotions in some of you who want to make a change in your life. 
an encouragement song to encourage you to change. If we can help you in any way, that's what we want to do this morning. Don't go anywhere without making your life right with God. The gospel plan of salvation is plain and it's sure. And it says that if you believe in God, repent of your sins, confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and be baptized for the remission of your sins and live a faithful life and you'll have eternal life with God in heaven forever and ever. Do you have that? Do you want that? We're ready. We're waiting. All you need to do is come right now as we stand together and as we sing.